Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. As inequality in the Bay Area has continued to increase, many neighborhoods all across the region have undergone massive changes. Like a wave, neighborhoods filled with working class people have seen home prices and rent skyrocket, displacing people further outward. While the dynamics are complex, new restaurants, new coffee shops, new bars, they're often a part of these mechanics of what gets called gentrification. So what responsibility do restaurant creators and critics feel to their communities? How should a new place engage with the people who live nearby, not just those who Uber in to try the new hot thing? We'll talk with critics and restaurateurs about all of it after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are nearly 4,000 restaurants in San Francisco alone, and several times that number across the Bay Area. Some are Taco Bells, but many are run by a single team or person or family, the building block of a dream. To find which places are great and which are merely adequate, we rely on the people who write about food, the restaurant critics and finders of -of out-of-the-way pupusas. They can change the trajectory of a restaurant in that way whole lives. But increasingly, some food writers are asking themselves what other responsibilities they have to the communities where they find those noodles or perfect beans or smoked meats. Should they help create a hot new spot in a largely BIPOC neighborhood, even if it were to become a catalyst for rising rents and displacement? In our latest edition of All You Can Eat, which explores the food cultures of the Bay Area, we ask some difficult questions of critics and chefs about the relationship between their crafts and their cities. Joining us first, we have, as always, KQED food editor Luke Sai. Welcome, Luke. Thanks so much, Alexis. We're also joined by Mona Holmes, a reporter with Eater Los Angeles, whose Twitter thread on her ethical concerns actually inspired this show. Welcome, Mona, and thank you. Thanks for having me. And we have Cesar Hernandez, restaurant critic with the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Cesar. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, Luke, you write a lot about small places, family spots and 
obviously you've thought a lot about what it does to those places to you know shine light on them wherever they are. But do you feel the weight of like, oh, wait, if I write about this place, I'm changing the community in which it's located? I think that's definitely something that I've grappled with um, more and more, you know, sort of over the years. And I've been doing this for about 10 years now. Um, I think I've talked about this on the air before, but I live in Richmond. Um, and I, and because I live in Richmond, I write a lot about Richmond's wonderful, um, amazing restaurant scene, you know, both places new um, and also just sort of longstanding uh, neighborhood places um, in sort of what's what's really a largely working class, uh, largely uh, Latino city. Um, and so, you know, I, I do think about this, you know, I, I think about like, what am I doing when I write this story and I highlight these places? And sometimes I worry that like part of what I'm doing is I'm making Richmond um, sort of attractive, look attractive and safe and comfortable um, and kind of cool to uh, ultimately to like an affluent white reader who might end up moving to Richmond, you know, And, and, and and I think about this as I've been living in Richmond for the past five years and just watching uh, the rents um, and the cost of housing skyrocket, you know, year after year. And so I know, you know, j- just just from reading and for, from talking to folks who study this stuff, like I know that restaurants do not, um, did not cause the housing crisis. You know, re- restaurants are not the reason uh, that people can't afford to live in San Francisco anymore, can't afford to live in Oakland anymore, and are now spreading increasingly uh, to places like like Richmond. Um, but at the same time, I think, you know, a, as a food writer, um, as a culture writer, um, you know, you, you, you can't help but think about what role you might be playing in, in sort of shaping the way that a city or a neighborhood is viewed, you know, and, and causing a place to be seen as, as an attractive, cool place. Yeah. Um, and, Which, and, you know, it's maybe not the worst thing in the world. I mean, I, it, um, that, that seems like there are some positive aspects for, for places, you know, like Richmond or, or East Oakland that have, you know, people have said bad things about them for a long time. Um, a- absolutely. Maybe it's good. Ab- absolutely. I think, I think, I think it's a, it's this double edged sword. And I think that if, if you're sort of trying to be thoughtful about what you're doing, that's that's the kind of double-edged sword that you're sort of walking. <laughs> you know, you're, you're yeah. sort of navigating all the time. Yeah. Mona Holmes, uh, reporter at Eater Los Angeles. Um, talk to me about what got you rethinking. You've also been in the game for a while, but what got you, like, rethinking about this topic and the ethics of it again? It all started because I wrote a story last week about a very respected coffee maker here in Los Angeles. They own two spots. One's called Kumquat Coffee and the other one's called, the new one is Loquat. And they opened up in um, a neighborhood that is, I mean, knee deep in the midst of gentrification. And these are people, they're also my favorite coffee place in the city. They make a fantastic cup. but when I was interviewing them, these are people that I see on the regular. I, mm-hmm. I found the urge, the need to go a little bit deeper in my questioning, something that I occasionally step into. And it's it's an admission that I'm a little bit ashamed to uh, mm. to 
bring to light because as a black woman, why wouldn't I be asking these questions? I also grew up here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they're in a, this new spot is in a largely uh, working class, mostly Latino neighborhood where people are being pushed out regularly. And the coffee there is likely out of the price point for the people that are in the surrounding block. Um, and so I asked them, I said, you know, like how, you know, how you might want to think about this and, and mm-hmm. prepare your response. I wanted to give them some time to really give it some thought. And when they were unprepared, I, I realized how lacking I was in my own questioning. Um, and, and for the record, I also agree um, with Luke. I, I don't believe that restaurants are cause the cause of gentrification, but they can certainly impact a neighborhood. And, and you know, in the case that comes to mind the most is um, when I wrote a story about the Dunsmore in Glissell Park and how residents, longtime residents that had lived there for 30, 40 years, once again, they were... Uh, working class, mostly Latino, that found their entry into the neighborhood very hostile. And there was a very Mm -hmm. unpleasant protest that we covered. And Mm -hmm. the restaurant owners failed to mention that, um, or they mentioned to us in a previous story that they had reached out to the community. And when I actually went door to door knocking Mm -hmm. on doors to talk to the community, they, they didn't. Mm. And that lack of truthfulness really, it, I'd say that that's probably where it started before Le Quoc Coffee. Mm. Um, but it just got me thinking and I wanted to engage with people about it on Twitter. So I did. Yeah. I mean, what did you, as you delved into this m- more deeply, what did you, what would you do differently about what you've done before? I mean, to me, looking at some of these restaurants, it's so hard for any restaurant to succeed. And it's so hard for restaurants uh, to succeed in any part of these big, you know, California cities where rents are so high. I mean, I imagine that you had thought to yourself, like, well, I'm doing kind of these places a solid. <laughs> you know, if I write about them, if they're, if they're doing a good job, then me saying they're doing a good job is sort of like how the world should work. Like, that's fair. Mm, it is. Uh, it, it is. And but for me. I, I think it really comes down to to one thing. If we don't ask better questions of of chefs and business owners and restaurants that are moving into largely gentrifying communities, then as food writers, uh, we're pretty much becoming a part of their publicity team, mm-hmm. and that's not reporting. It's it's and it's it's hard. We I mean. Luke, as a former Eater SF um, <laughs> reporter, remembers we crank out a lot of stories on the regular. And so there are times when I've said, you know what, I do want to get into this and I don't have time. Um, so, yeah, I didn't realize this would be a confession hour with me, but it is. <laughs> um, Welcome, so... Mona. You're, you're held here. Um... <laughs> yeah, indeed. So it's it's about asking better questions. And, and also, too, the other thing that really struck me about when I spoke with both of these business owners um, I don't understand how this wouldn't come up in the research, research and development process. The R&D process is crucial for any business that's opening, especially a restaurant, um, to determine whether or not you have an audience there, whether or not you have a customer there. Mm. So I, I realized right away, I'm like, okay, I can't really avoid this anymore. So just asking those specific questions geared towards that and decentering the business owner and especially for a restaurant that has such a big uh, impact on any community um i i just felt like it was time to really bring it to light Uh, for me at least yeah 
Cesar Hernandez, I'm you hearing two fellow restaurant writers thinking through this. What what parts of what they're saying are kind of resonating for you, or what parts you sort of like? Actually, I think I disagree there. So I feel like a lot of what Mona and Luke said are are, are very true. You know, I think at the end of the day, like I, I have a, a position where I can be a little more meditative, but it's still service journalism at the end of the day. Like we have to tell folks, uh, you know, to ignore gentrification is to not report fairly. And I think that for me, uh, so much of my writing was tied to place. Like when I started in LA, it was about like, you know, I wanted to see sort of the places that I grew up in represented. And so now, now that I'm here in the Bay area, I'm, I'm always aware of like the space that I take up and, that's especially true with, you know, the added sort of like audience of, of a legacy publication. And mm-hmm. especially when you're in places like Oakland, San Francisco, who've had like a long sort of like process of gentrification. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like being in someone else's home and like you should be respectful of the space you occupy. And for me, that's especially true because sometimes I write about folks who is lit- they're literally selling from their home and... Mm-hmm. I've had to think about it, you know, in a different way than I did like writing for local publications like LA Taco or Elias, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. when it was back then, it was a smaller audience. And, you know, it was like, for me, it was like trying to put on or give attention to some of these restaurants. But at the same time now, like your spotlight might be, be too bright. <laughs> yeah. Right. And potentially put them in harm, which is why I'm so, I'm always so careful to like not include mm-hmm. addresses and like to discuss mm-hmm. like, what this means and like the sort of like new clientele that might might come up. And, you know, that doesn't like that regardless of my intention, it doesn't mean that it doesn't bring new interests, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that that's something that we have to like acknowledge. Like I think gentrification is one of those things that's like Voldemort, like you're not supposed to acknowledge (laughs) it in fear that we might be implicated somehow. But I think it's important. I think it's important to, to write about it. And I think, to write about a lot of Oakland's, you know, restaurant scene or, or cuisine is, is to write about gentrification in some way or another. And like, whether we acknowledge it, that's something that, you know, I, I think that's on the writer themselves, but I am working on a story where I, I want to engage with it a lot more. And I yeah. think that this is something that uh, Solejo and, and I have been talking a lot about. We're talking about the role restaurants, food critics, restaurateurs play in changing various cities with KQD food editor Luke Sai, Cesar Hernandez, restaurant critic with the San Francisco Chronicle, and Mona Holmes, a reporter with Eater Los Angeles. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the role that restaurants, food critics, restaurateurs play in changing Bay Area cities. It's part of our All You Can Eat series with KQED food editor Luke Tsai. And we're joined by Mona Holmes, a reporter with Eater Los Angeles, and Cesar Hernandez, a restaurant critic with San Francisco Chronicle. We want to hear from you, too. I mean, has a restaurant changed your neighborhood for the better, for the worse? How has it done that? And what do you think a restaurant's responsibility is to the community that it's in? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's KQED Forum. And again, we want to know, how has a restaurant changed your neighborhood? And you can email us, forum at kqed.org. Now we're going to bring in a couple of people with a lot of experience in the restaurant world and who've thought a lot about their impact on the neighborhoods in which they're working. Uh, first, we're joined by Reem Asil, chef at Reem's California, forum favorite, author of Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. Welcome, Reem. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're also joined by Jay Foster, chef, restaurateur, and marketplace general manager at La Cocina, which is a nonprofit that helps a lot of uh, immigrant women formalize their food businesses. Also, shout out to some of his amazing restaurants through time. Um, many people may know Farmer Brown. Uh, welcome, Jay. Hey, good morning. Nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Um, Reem, so most recently you opened Reems of California, 25th and Bartlett there in San Francisco, kind of on the south side of the mission. It's right by my old house. I think it was the Mission Pie space. When you were looking at opening that space, how did you think about what you had to do to do right by the community around it? Yeah, so um, I think it's important to talk about Oakland first, which was our flagship mm, in the mm-hmm. Fruitvale neighborhood district of Oakland. Um, at that time, you know, I was scoping out what uh, spaces I wanted. Reams, you know, Reams had our ethos is really centralized on social justice. And looking at the Fruitvale neighborhood, it was one of the the neighborhoods that were you know, relatively uh, less touched by the forces of gentrification in Oakland. And so I picked that space uh, very purposefully. Hmm. And several years, or, you know, a couple of years later, um, I was looking for housing in Oakland. And um, there was a pamphlet for one of the houses. And in it, Reams, California was one of the attractions to the neighborhood. Hmm. And it was kind of a aha moment for me uh, mm. that the forces of gentrification are so far bigger than even a space like mine that was really trying to be intentional about creating a space where all walks of life could come in. Um, and, you know, turned out one of those walks of life spot. was rich people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know, we are very, very explicit about sort of what we're trying to build at Reams. And so, you know, absent of, I wanted to, the design of our space was really to uh, to reflect the communities we're in. So even mm-hmm. people from the outside were really forced to engage with people who are from that neighborhood. Now, obviously, the forces of gentrification are much bigger, uh, you know, being able to pay your workers well meant that price points had to be higher. 
Um, so, you know, we were grappling with all these things. And when Mission Pi, um, which was the space uh, before, reached out to us, they were really worried about leaving a vacuum in the mission. Mm -hmm. um, so they actually reached out to us to take over the space. And so I was presented with a new challenge of like, how do I do the same thing um, and be intentional about not adding? And I remember those first months as we were signing the lease in that space, meeting with community groups like Calle 2024, uh, mm -hmm. which is yeah. a local group. And sitting with them and talking about, you know, what we were trying to build. And they're like, yeah, but you were written about in food and wine. We know what that means. <laughs> um, and again, uh, that was kind of like the eye-opening moment. And I kind of jokingly said, well, <laughs> whatever's good, white people are going to find it. <laughs> <laughs> um, or like, you know, the more folks with more disposable income are going to find it. So yeah. how do we do, you know, and I kind of shared with them, how do we combat that? Um, by hiring locally, by really making sure that our that that the food and the space is really accessible to the people who live there. And so I, I worked really closely with a lot of the community groups and did a lot of work leading up to the opening of Reams to really be intentional about these forces that are much larger than just myself. I mean, also, this is a hard, hard business. I mean, you want people with money to find your restaurant, don't you? I mean, like, th that has to be part of the customer Correct. mix, right? It is. It is. Um, but one thing we learned in the pandemic, I mean, we really struggled with this in the Fruitvale because we were on a transit line. We thought that this was going to be part of people's daily lives mm. and then realized it's kind of a privilege to come and pay some of the price points um, that we had on our food. And we had to do that with um, what we were paying our workers. We wanted to make sure that we were... Um, you know, we could survive as a business, but we couldn't survive with just the community surrounding it alone. So it had to become a destination spot. But when the pandemic hit, it was a stark reality that that's not sustainable as well, you know, because mm -hmm. um, people weren't coming. So mm -hmm. it has to be a little bit of a balance. Um, we know that the top 100s and having to stay relevant, you know, that is a uh, part of the work, but building deep in the communities you're in are really what's going to sustain you. And we saw that we opened three days before the shutdown and the mission, and we were looking around us to see who was successful. And it was those, you know, small mom and pops that were there for 10, you know, 10 plus years that had built a base um, in the neighborhood. So I, I think it's important to, to remember that you know, your customer base has to be, you can't just focus on being the destination spot, but you definitely is what kind of helps keep our business alive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we try to figure out how to, how to have that good balance. So Jay Foster, um, this feels like a good time to bring you in, both because you have experienced kind of the highs of the restaurant business, but you've also uh, closed some, some places down. Tell us about how you've tried to balance these factors that everybody is referencing in this show. You know, when you open up Farmer Brown, um, it's in the tenderloin, um, and you had to learn how to sort of integrate into the community in a way that felt respectful. Yeah, uh, I appreciate Forum, and I appreciate KQED for uh, letting us talk about this. But yeah, I, it's, I, I've always felt like as an entrepreneur that I needed to 
uh, in order to succeed, I needed to kind of go on the fringe of where I felt like people could go in the ha- in the past and in, in, in history. And I think that was just a way of trying to find places to thrive as a restaurateur um, mm-hmm. and meeting people where they are in the community, I think is, you know, is, is not something that initially that I, I really thought about. And I think that the times that I've had, I have had trouble with restaurants, it's because I, I really didn't do that. And I really didn't pay attention to the people that were there and, you know, what prices they could pay and just to be part of that community. Um, mm-hmm. And wh- where I am now, you know, it's at, with La Cocina, it's just, uh, you know, amazing to be part of something that specifically uh is just mission driven towards that you know um to be really focused on who's in the community and how we can meet people in the community um yeah yeah for those who aren't familiar with the la cocina marketplace and sort of how it works and how where where it is in the tunnel can you just give us a little bit of that so people um have a sense of what the challenge is and what the opportunity is there yeah, it's you know the Tenderloin is really challenging. It's it's about a block from City Hall, um, just right next to uh, Hastings Law School. The municipal marketplace, uh, and if you don't know, La Cocina is a nonprofit organization that helps women, immigrant women, and women of color formalize their food businesses. And the the marketplace is sort of recently open, and it represents uh, La Cocina's uh, a ground floor approach to giving the entrepreneurs the ability to be able to thrive in a city like San Francisco. So, you know, we basically house uh, uh, eight different businesses uh, under one roof as sort of a food hall and give them an opportunity to to try their business and try their brand and try their food um, under sort of, you know, um, our guidance mm-hmm. uh, and, and protection. And, you know, being in the Tenderloin, being in this community is, is, you know, I've been here for 15 years and even coming into this space, didn't even really fully realize the fabric of the community that was in the Tenderloin until I was a part of La Cocina. And, mm-hmm. you know, with direct outreach and with people on staff specifically committed to being part of the community and weaving the community into the marketplace has has given us the ability to, to actively fight back against gentrification while making a huge investment in the community. Can you tell us like specific things that you feel like La Cocina Marketplace does differently than other places that might open up in a, in a spot like that? Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, one is affordability. So we will make sure that there's always uh, uh, a full meal that you can get for $5. Um, and the other is, I think, probably one of our biggest achievements. We we brought EBT into the restaurant world. I think that EBT is something that is, you know that you'll find at you know liquor stores or corner stores or gro- some grocery stores, but very few restaurateurs really want EBT customers or actively looking to see if we can uh, have EBT as something that can be part of what we do. So uh, our our vendors take EBT, and then. Uh, more importantly, I think is gaining the trust of the people in the community because they're so used to being marginalized because of who they are, where they live, what they look like, and, you know, getting to those people and letting them know that it's okay for you to come into this space 
and you know you use your resources here or you know spend money here and and yes there is something here for you uh and, and it's not just food we also give you know computer stations and free books and stuff like that you know? yeah we're talking about the role restaurants and food writers play in changing bay area cities as part of our all you can eat series with kqed food editor Luke Sai, also joined by Mona Holmes, a reporter at Eater Los Angeles, Cesar Hernandez, a restaurant critic with the San Francisco Chronicle. And we're hearing in this segment from our two chefs and restaurateurs, Jay Foster, chef restaurateur, marketplace general manager at La Cocina, and Reem Asil, chef at Reem's California, and author of a fantastic cookbook, the cookbook that got me making bread, Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Has a restaurant changed your neighborhood? How has it done that? And what do you think a restaurant's responsibility is to the community that it's in? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, it's KQD Forum. Uh, and the email is forum at kqed.org. You know, Reem, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the contention between the kind of labor side and the community side. Um, you know, you mentioned that. In order to pay people uh, what you feel like they're worth, you needed to have uh, higher prices, like sort of on the on the menu. And you've kind of even gone further than this, right? Because you're sort of exploring, actually changing the corporate governance structure for Reams, uh, so that you'll have like worker owners, right? Yeah, correct. Um, I think. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Just talk to me a little bit about that and, and how you see that. Yeah, I mean, I um, well, one, I want to shout out uh, a group called Studio Atau. Um, it's they are they have a lot of primers on sort of the intersection of the restaurant industry with social justice issues. And um, I was an advisor on uh, a, pro, a primer that they uh, had on gentrification, and that's coming out soon. But in sort of the midst of that, we did. Um, a bunch of town halls with restaurants. And I think the biggest feedback that we got from restaurants was like this double-edged sword of, mm. we know we don't want to, we want to be a force <laughs> of building up community, but we also need to survive as a business. And these forces are so much bigger. And so how do we get the support systems? And so um, Reams is, Reams we always wanted to figure out how do we build generational wealth? I mean, that was part of our model from the onset. And I think the pandemic really fast-tracked uh, our process for worker ownership. Um, and so we've been engaging in the last year and a half or uh, year and a half or so, maybe even more mm -hmm. around what does, what does it look like to seed some of our power as stakeholders that have more privilege, i.e. restaurateurs, uh, investors, uh, you know, organizations, funders, um, all of the above to workers who have been most hurt um, by the restaurant industry, uh, who typically come from the communities that those restaurants are in. What would it look like to shift the power a little bit mm -hmm. and put uh the solution, you know, help empower them to come up with the solutions to um, build a more equitable restaurant industry, because we know that if we can do that, 
that would trickle into other parts of their lives, right? It would build their leadership in their communities. So that was the thesis. But I think what we learned as just one restaurant on an island, you can't really do that. We need more policies um, and support networks, places like La Cocina um, to help build you know, sort of like a force field of restaurants who are doing it at the same time. We kind of saw some of this happen during the pandemic with the changing from the tipping model to the service charge, everybody kind of doing it in full force. Um, And it matters uh, when, I I think it's more impactful um, when restaurants with, you know, who are vision aligned kind of do this together. And so, Reams is really engaging, not just in a model of changing into work, uh, you know, as symbolic at best at right now, because we know restaurants don't, you know, have a huge profit margin, but the act of, you know, giving value to employees, you know, basically giving profit to employees who are putting the value into your business, I think has ripple effects. And so we're trying to create a model that can be replicated within the restaurant industry, because I think that's what will have the maximum impact. Yeah. Mona Holmes, you know, as I listen to Reem talk about all these things that she's trying to do and that other, you know, vision aligned restaurants are trying to do. I mean, is this putting too much on individual restaurateurs to try to stand and thwart these kind of structural changes that are happening in our cities? Oh, I I have as someone who worked in restaurants for years <laughs> in front of the house, I have such a high level of sympathy for restaurant owners. Um for me asking these questions of them are are absolutely hard for people who put 150% of their all into just running things day by day uh, in an industry that yields very thin profit margins and and a lot of the time has thankless customers <laughs> so <laughs> so i i completely understand it and which is why when i was questioning the cafe owner about his Mm -hmm. intentions, you know, I, I went about it in a very careful manner. I wanted to give them ample time to, Mm -hmm. to be able to respond to, to at least where he could at least put it with to his partners and come up with something that was meaningful rather than just a quick Mm -hmm. answer. Uh, So it's, it's something that I'm hoping I mean, I'm, we're in the very beginning phases of talking about this throughout all the eater sites. There's, there's over 20 of them mm-hmm. um, in various cities throughout the U.S. Um, just by starting to bake in these types of questions um, and get restaurant owners very used to the idea of answering these questions in largely gentrifying areas. Um, you know, and, and I don't believe that people are wanting to be bad neighbors. <laughs> I think that they're just lacking in... Uh, maybe just the skill of and need to be reminded of how it is to be a good neighbor in a neighborhood that you're opening in. Yeah. We're talking about the role restaurants and the food culture play in changing Bay Area cities. Part of all you can eat series with KQED food editor Luke Sai. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking restaurant, changing cities, the difficult ethical questions that arise. Joined by KQED food editor Luke Sai, of course, Mona Holmes, reporter with Eater Los Angeles, whose Twitter thread on her ethical concerns inspired the show. Cesar Hernandez, restaurant critic at San Francisco Chronicle. Rima Seal, chef at Reams, California, and author of Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. And Jay Foster, chef, restaurateur, and marketplace general manager at La Cocina, also created a Farmer Brown, wonderful uh, restaurant. We, Luke, I want to talk to you a little bit about how this conversation has changed uh, in the, you know, I don't even, not, not through the pandemic, let's call it. Um, when we look at what has happened to so many restaurants, it's like people are hanging on by a thread. This already, as we mentioned, is not like a high margin business. And then many of them have, have barely been able to hang on or have gone out of business. Does that change anything for you, like that the, the worsening or at least what became a very bad business climate for a while? Yeah, I mean, I think like other people have pointed out, you know, Mona talked about this earlier. I, I don't think any of this conversation, uh, at least on my part, is motivated by a sense of wanting to like just go out there and call people out and say, you know, you, you're a gentrifier, <laughs> you know, you you get out of this neighborhood, you don't have a right uh, to run a business. Um, but I think, you know, in thinking about this, like, why shouldn't these types of questions just be a normal part of what uh, business owners, uh, restaurant owners uh, think about in the same way that as a food writer, I feel like I need to grapple with this. You know, I, I think about, you know, like, it's been a sort of thought experiment that's been put out <laughs> at various times by different folks opening businesses. But like, the this idea of like, what would an anti-gentrification restaurant or cafe look like? Um, and does that word or term even make any sense, <laughs> you know, like, like, what would that be? And I feel like, though it, it, it feels sort of like a thought experiment, there have been various folks who, who have been very thoughtful about this. And I think that that can serve as an example for people who are opening restaurants in these types of changing neighborhoods. You know, I, I think a lot of people, our listeners might have heard of um, Nick Cho, you know, some, a lot of you probably know him as uh, your Korean dad, <laughs> a po- very popular uh, TikTok uh, and YouTube uh, series. Um, but before he became known for that, he was primarily known as a coffee um, a, a, a business owner, you know, um, and uh, and coffee shop owner here in San Francisco. And I remember a few years ago when I profiled him for San Francisco Magazine, he was uh, 
trying to open a, a new coffee shop in the mission. We know that coffee shops, especially these sort of like fancy third wave coffee shops, are like kind of the most stereotypical example of the type of business that often gets called out for being like a bellwether for gentrification. And so he had this opportunity to open a coffee shop in the mission um, and uh, sort of struggled with that. Like, does the mission really need another coffee shop? <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, I just remember having these conversations where he just wanted to sort of take that idea and, and kind of run with it. Like, what would an anti-gentrification coffee shop look like, you know? Um, and we just talked about things like, well, like very basic, like if you're opening in a predominantly Latino neighborhood, are your signs bilingual? And not just like the Spanish in like tiny, tiny print, <laughs> but like both menus like equally prominently displayed. Um, or just things like thinking about what are the, what, like, what are you trying to sell? In this neighborhood, you know, like he, uh, Nick is primarily known for being an expert on pour over coffee. Like he's probably like the most <laughs> famous pour over coffee person <laughs> in the country. And so he like his coffee shops were known for serving a six dollar pour over. And he was like, if I open this coffee shop, I'm not going to serve pour over coffee, even though that's like my thing, you know, mm -hmm. but like does six dollar pour over coffee even make sense? in the context of like a neighborhood where working class Latino people are going to be coming in uh, with their kids and with their families. Um, and so I just feel like, you know, I think this is what Mona was talking about. Like, can we just normalize these types of conversations and this type of thinking? Because like Reem was saying, I think ultimately these are good things for a business to be thinking about, even as it thinks about its own financial sustainability. You know, do you really want to be a kind of business that's solely dependent on people who are going to Uber in from affluent neighborhoods and then Uber back home? Or are you going to have a loyal customer base that's going to stick with you um, that's that's built up from the ground up in that neighborhood? Well, and Caesar, it, it also seems to me like as we get deeper into the discussion that there's there's just different levels and complexity. So, you know, if we're talking about a, a fine dining place, just, you know, plopping down in deep East Oakland, maybe that's one thing about the kind of conversation. But it oftentimes feels like it's a lot more complicated than that to me, like, what if it was a more assimilated Mexican-American who lives in Walnut Creek who then opens up a spot in the Fruitvale? Like, are, are, do the questions need to change based on some of these, these factors that go into opening these restaurants in particular places? Uh, was that for me? Yeah, that was for you. Sorry, Caesar. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, that's sort of the difficulty with this process is that intention is just one side of it, it doesn't remove anyone from, from this process. And I think that's, that's always the difficulty. Cause like, you know, like I, I, I'll tell you a story. I had a, I had a friend who opened up, uh, I, I'm from Linwood. This, this like, uh, it's, it's the city over next to Compton in LA. And he opened up this coffee shop. Uh, he came from like the Tierra Mia, which is like a Latino owned coffee shop. And he decided to open up his own in Linwood. And a lot of his struggle was like, trying to kind of show the community or like tell the community why it costs so much to, you know, to why each cup of coffee costs so much. And they struggled a lot with just, you know, showing this, uh, showing our community that this is, this is this new thing and this is why it costs that. But, you know, oftentimes working class folks don't want to pay that extra, you know, they, they'd rather rely on, on sort of the, 
the things that are accessible and quick, like uh, Circle K or, or 7-Eleven, things like that. So I think that those are still questions that every restaurant, regardless of their intention and regardless of it's if they, they are Latinos opening up in a, in a Latino area, you know, like it's it's long been talked about this idea of like gentrification, which is just like <laughs> gentrification with an accento, you know, like a an accent mark. But I don't think that necessarily skirts or solves anything. But I think that this is something that we do have to talk about. And and realistically, like uh, like a lot of the way that a lot of folks have alluded to is uh, restaurants aren't necessarily the problem. It, it's there's there are deeper forces that have been shaping this for a lot longer than some of these restaurants have have even started to do this. And I think that that's 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 the, where you start to see the, these problems where we start to see you know, the the facade or like the front facing restaurant and blame them for, for causing this whole thing. And while restaurants and coffee shops and, and nice dining attractions can be sort of like symbols of gentrification, they're not the entire process themselves. And mm-hmm. I think that there is a way to be to engage with the community. And that's, it's just it just takes really being involved in that. And that just depends on the restaurant. Yeah. You know, Reem, uh, is there just positive change that a bustling restaurant brings to a neighborhood even if it even if it does drive up rents like let's just say you know a little some corner somewhere has like two or three restaurants that really get get moving um there's more people on the street there's more eyes on the street there's more people around there's more money flowing through is that a a good in and of itself you think or does it need to be uh, put together so that the distribution of the money flowing through that place flows in particular ways in order for it to be good for the neighborhood as a whole. Yeah, I think it depends on the context, but I certainly believe that what we're trying to do at Reams and the neighborhoods that we're in is be an add value, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's about um, engaging with the the other businesses that are on that street or on that block, how, you know, we're not trying to cannibalize business. We're trying to bring business and drive business and activity for everyone. Um, And I think, you know, what that looks like for Reams is that like we're sourcing from the local grocery stores. Uh, We're doing collabs with the different organizations like that, whatever we're generating, the activity that we're generating uh, is an add value for everyone on that street. Um, I know a lot of folks who, I mean, in other neighborhoods that you that are not as walkable, that might be hard, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know there was like the, the backlash around the parklets, right? That that was hard for parking and driving. So it really just depends on the neighborhood. And I think, um, you know, uh, my role as a business owner is to really understand what are the needs and what are maybe the negative externalities um, that we may cause and how do we offset that? Uh, mm-hmm. I think that... Um, you know, I think one of the things that we really try to do is um, make sure that that there's like there's an offset for anything that um, that that may cause, um, you know, just yeah. like an inconvenience for the neighborhoods that we're in. So yeah, it really I think is contextual. Yeah, uh, one listener 
tweet, um, you know, the Lower Bottoms in West Oakland lost its longtime community diner, The Pretty Lady, which really was a tremendous spot. The diner was a beloved breakfast, lunch, coffee, brunch place where neighbors could hang out and spend replaced by a sandwich shop that few people from the uh, neighborhood visit. Peter also wants to note that, you know, restaurants often fight costs and margins and rent is huge. Often a restaurant under consideration can only afford to look in certain neighborhoods seeking lower rents. And a lower rent can mean the difference between success or failure for a startup restaurant. Spend no discussion of the benefits of successful or even just surviving restaurant in a neighborhood, bringing in nightlife, providing employment to local residents, keeping the neighborhood from slipping down if that's part of of what's happening. You know, I wanted to... um, Mona, I want to throw this to to you. I mean, not every neighborhood is experiencing, um, you know, a, a, a renaissance of of wealth, and a lot of neighborhoods and and other places are stagnating or or worse. Is that like uh, in a in a situation like that? Do you feel like the ethical calculus works differently? That's a yeah. That's that is always where I typically get into a fight with someone on Twitter (laughs) talking about this, not necessarily a fight, but in uh, a live enlivened discussion. Um, I think that, uh, well, I know that a lot of these neighborhoods are wanted investment over the decades, but could not get it through um, systems that were not designed to um, uh, provide loans or uplift black and brown owned businesses. Um, but what I think that, um, you know, by approaching their entry into a neighborhood with compassion and care, um, you know, for because there's always someone who is telling me, you know, this is a good thing. This is this will absolutely help move things forward from a neighborhood that's really struggling or, you know, or um, unfortunately violent. You know, we need to think about what that means for the people who live there and have lived there for decades. Um, to say something like that and um, and address it in a way where they they really think about it. A case in point is um, a very popular uh, restaurant here named Squirrel. Um, mm-hmm. There was uh, the business owner uh, was very vocal in the thing. One of the things that made her successful, she said that she set up on a really unremarkable corner in um, a LA neighborhood, and that was part of what made her able to succeed, even though that used to be a very prominent Salvadoran neighborhood with a very famous, um, a longstanding bakery, Panaderia, mm-hmm. that had to leave because of businesses like hers moving in. Um, and so when she would say something like that, my response was always, well, what is, how would that land with someone who's lived there for 30 years and who finds that a wonderful spot? Um, but there's all kinds of things that they can that restaurant owners can do. Like, are they attending town halls or local city council meetings, you know, to figure out what the priorities are? If they're considering parking as uh, a consideration, which is largely a huge problem with these types of neighborhoods, um, you know, are they hiring locally? There's there's just really good questions for us to answer that will expand our coverage and make it more interesting and community centered rather than you know, more business friendly. At least yeah. that, that will be for me. You know, oh, go ahead. 
Oh, Alexis, I, I was wondering if I could just jump yeah. in with the yeah, story, yeah. you know, just listening to Mona talk about this and kind of bringing this f- full circle into the question of like, what is the food writer's responsibility? Um, I just think about my first job in food writing, um, some some listeners might know, was as the, the restaurant critic for the East Bay Express. And I was largely covering the sort of like little mom and pop businesses in the East Bay that no one else was really writing about too much at that time. And so I remember one of the reviews I was so proud to write was um, I wrote this review of uh, Taqueria El Paisa at dot com, which is this taqueria <laughs> in Fruitvale that to this day is still, you know, one of my favorite uh, taco spots in Oakland and in the East Bay. And I just remember writing that review and I was so proud of myself for being sort of the first person to write a formal review of this place that was like beloved, super popular, um, but hadn't been sort of acknowledged by mainstream media um, up until that point. Um, you know, like, like I was like some sort of like discount store, uh, Jonathan Gold, you know, coming in and telling people about like the real treasures that they could find in the Fruitvale. And I just remember like one of the first comments that I got on that review, this was, you know, back when, when we, we would have like online commenters commenting on your reviews was like, oh, like you just gentrified Taqueria El Paiso <laughs> at dot com. And like some things are better not to be like said out loud in public. Um, and I just feel like, you know, as a food writer, if 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 I'm putting out any good into this world, I always think, well, yeah, I'm I'm like hopefully teaching people to appreciate other cultures in a way that they didn't before. And like, hopefully I'm helping like these little perhaps struggling small businesses to like, you know, do, do better to be able to survive and to thrive, you know, but um, I just feel like this conversation just reminds me, like just thinking about it uh, from my own perspective, like how am I doing that? You know, am I basically acting like some sort of Christopher Columbus, you know, who's like discovered some sort of treasure in this new neighborhood that I want to share, like bragging and boasting so proudly of what I found? Um, Or am I really trying to understand the specific cultural context of like a particular place and, and the role it serves in that community and why people in that community love that place and what, what it does to serve those people. And am I, is that the thing that I'm celebrating when I'm writing about a place like but that? Can um, you also just like see that guy's beard who left that comment on that review though? <laughs> I just feel like, I just feel such a, such a hipster approach to it. Um, that's, that's very, thank you though. I appreciate all, how thoughtful all of you have been about this. We know that there isn't really like an ultimate like answer to this, but this is kind of one of those shows where we're trying to just grapple with the role that restaurants play in our changing cities. Um, we have been joined by KQED editor, uh, food editor Luke Sai. Thank you, Luke. Thank you so much. And we also have had a, just a fantastic panel of other folks. Mona Holmes, a reporter at Eater Los Angeles. Her Twitter thread got us really uh, inspired to do this show on kind of ethical concerns of food writers. Also been joined by Cesar Hernandez, restaurant critic with the San Francisco Chronicle. Rima Seal, chef at Reams, California, among other restaurants through time. Also author of Arabia, Recipes from the Life of an Arab in Diaspora. And we've been joined by Jay Foster, chef, restaurateur, and now Marketplace General Manager 
manager at La Cocina. Go check that out. Uh, La Cocina is a nonprofit that helps immigrant women kind of formalize their food businesses. Great organization. Thanks so much, Jay. Thank you to all our guests. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.